Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm trying to contain my excitement because I have Dr. Craig Evans as my guest today. He's written over 70 books, and he's one of the foremost scholars on Jesus Christ in evangelical circles. So if this was a sports show, I have Tom Brady on today. How cool is that? (laughs) Dr. Evans, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. Have you ever been referred to as Tom Brady? Uh, no, I think you're the first, so <laughs> congratulations. Well, thank you so much for being on the program. Uh, your book uh, that we're talking about today is a handbook on the Jewish roots of the gospel, so I do have a bunch of questions to ask you about that. If we can, let's get started. Were the gospels, uh, were they written for Christians or Jews? Well, uh, that's an interesting question, and of course the way you're raising it is the reason why we did this handbook, because there is this general lack of understanding, I'd put it, even in the church, how Jewish the Jesus movement was from its very beginning, and the church for its first hundred years, how it really was. And so we tend to think in those terms, is this Jewish or is it Christian? Mm -hmm. And for the Jesus movement, it was one and the same. And in fact, the controversy for the early Jesus movement was, you know, do you have to be Jewish to be a Christian? And the leader said, you know what? No, you actually, you don't have to. Mm-hmm. And then the next question was, okay, okay, you can be a Gentile. I guess you can become a Christian. But do you have to follow the Jewish rules once you join the church? Oh. And they thought about it. They thought about it said, no, actually, you don't have to. But you've got to abandon your pagan practices that are offensive and, and sinful. Oh, okay. And that's how it went. And so the church took off and grew like crazy and after 300 years, uh, you know, being persecuted and everything else, without any violence, without a shot fired, the early church swept the Roman Empire nonviolently in 300 years, a little less, and became the majority view. And by the way, a lot of people think that Christianity then became the legal religion, the only religion. That's not really true. It's the Roman Empire decided, look, you can be any faith you want. Mm-hmm. And so there was a far more tolerant and open-minded expression. And so I think that's remarkable. But what else happened, and the reason we had to do this handbook, is that the church was the majority in the Roman Empire, and the overwhelming majority in the church were not Jewish, of course. And so you had all these non-Jewish people, what we call Gentiles, uh, former pagans who are now Christians, and they, they, of course, knew who Jesus was, you know, and that's what it's all about. But what they didn't understand was the Judaism the Jewish ethnicity, culture, customs, faith, scriptures, and so on, that is all part of that. And that's why this handbook is important, because that hasn't changed much. Even to this day, you still have people who think, well, let me see now, if I'm Jewish, I guess I can't be a Christian. Or if I, be, if I am Jewish, I become a Christian, and I, I guess I'm not a Jew anymore. And that's not true. That's just plain wrong. And so it's this kind of confusion we hope to address. Mm-hmm. Dr. Craig Evans is my guest. His book is called A Handbook on the Jewish Roots of the Gospels. My next question, Craig, uh, take as much time as you like to answer this one. Uh, why, why does your book say that the Gospels are unique and as complex as Jesus? Well, that's because they are. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I've touched on it. Yeah, it's because 
you have these different cultural uh, contexts. And so, uh, you know, the Roman Empire was a big deal, too. There are a lot of people who might understand, okay, Jesus was Jewish, as the early church was Jewish. They're not Gentiles. I get it. But uh, what's that got to do with Rome? Well, everything. And so <clears throat> a lot of people don't realize that Israel was a strategic partner in the Roman Empire. Uh, Israel was the buffer between the Roman Empire to the west and the wild, crazy east where, where Rome had enemies. And so Herod the Great made uh, Israel a fantastic ally to the Roman Empire. That's a big deal. And so Jesus is navigating all kinds of things politically. I was just looking at a book that a famous French scholar wrote 100 years ago, and he's talking about how Jesus probably didn't know a thing about politics, hardly knew a thing about Herod. I thought, wow, is that wow. guy out of date or what? <laughs> so it's complicated. So the Gospels know that. Mark's Gospel begins with the words, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, that's what everybody was saying about Caesar. And so Mark has oriented his gospel to speak to the Roman Empire. And what does he do? He cites the good news that comes out of Isaiah. So he's saying, you got the right idea. There's good news out there that the Son of God brings. You just, you just don't know what that good news is, and you're looking at the wrong Son of God. So those are two different, very different cultural things that collide. And so that's what's going on. So it's not just recognizing the Jewishness of the Jesus movement, the Gospels and the New Testament and so on, but it's recognizing that it's a, Jew, a Jewish movement inside the Roman Empire and all the dynamics that have, is involved there. So it is complicated. It starts with Jesus. He's working that out and training his disciples so they would know how to communicate his teaching, how to proclaim the good news, the, God, the good news of God and his kingdom in a world that's complicated, conflicted, full of paganism, full of superstition. <clears throat> and it was a huge challenge. And so we hope we can help our readers sort that out and make better sense of the Gospels. Mm -hmm. Craig, you suggest that the book of Matthew enjoyed pride and place in the emerging fourfold Gospel collection. I would love for you to explain that. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the church was really smart in seeing that Matthew is the one that, that needs to be put at the front of the New Testament that was just beginning to emerge uh, in the second century, because Matthew forms a natural land bridge, you might say, between the very Jewish Israelite Old Testament and, on the other hand, the good news Jesus proclaimed, a good news that now is moving with force into a non-Jewish world, the Roman Empire. And so Matthew was perfect. He connects the two Testaments very well. Uh, it's very Judaic in its orientation. Scripture is cited right and left is fulfilled. The law of Moses is engaged. Jesus shows how it really is to be fulfilled. And so Jesus, Jesus is very deliberately uh, portrayed as a new Moses. And yet at the same time, He's making the gospel relevant for, for Greeks and Romans who read it and hear about it. So uh, it is pride of place, and it's, just, it's a fact. Uh, in the uh, first uh, two centuries or so of the church, Matthew is the gospel that's quoted more often than any of the other three. Hmm. So interesting. Uh, Craig, why is there ongoing study of the gospel of John? Well, you know, John, John's different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic. That means you can see them together. 
side by side in columns, and they cover the same ground. In fact, about 60% of their context, contents are the same. And John is way out there, an outlier. And so John, John's very engaged in the Old Testament. John works out his own comparison between Jesus and Moses. But uh, he writes in a very different style. Jesus is in the embodiment of God's Word, his logos, his wisdom. Uh, John is very distinctive in a lot of ways. And John engages head-on some serious Jewish polemic. And so uh, the, con- the funny thing is about John, it's the most Jewish, actually, of the four Gospels, and yet it's the most polemical also. And so it takes a lot of skill and contextualization to understand what John is, because you can misuse John and make it into some kind of terrible anti-Semitic, uh, you know, rant or something like that. But it isn't. It's very conciliatory. It reaches out to the Jewish people, but it is critical of some of their leaders. Which, by the way, so so's the later rabbinic tradition in the Talmud, just as critical of some of the Jewish leaders in the first century. And they blamed them for, for the war with, with Rome that took place that destroyed the city and the temple in the year 70. So John is actually on the same page with many of the uh, religious thinkers, Jewish thinkers and teachers, uh, and just but, but people don't know that. So that's something else that we need to talk about. Yeah. Are you this smart all day long? <laughs> oh, I mean, it just comes in uh, surges, Casely. Uh, so I, mean, I saved it up for you today. Oh, do you ever do anything dumb, like leave your cell phone at a restaurant or anything? I mean, I'm trying to look for what you and I might have in common. <laughs> well, not yet, but, you know, if it makes you feel better, I'll do that tomorrow. Or oh, would something. you please? Because uh, yeah. it will make me feel better, yeah. <laughs> so, Greg, what do you mean by the Jewish Gospels? Well, you know, there's a, there's a group of Gospels they're not crazy. They're not wildly heretical. They're none of this Dan Brown kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, you had denominations, let us put it that way. And so they're kind of the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, of the uh, late first century, second century. They, they wanted to be Christians. They wanted to be followers of Jesus, but they wanted to dumb down the Christology a little bit and say, look, Jesus is just this guy. He's a really good rabbi and a good teacher, but he really wasn't the son of God in any kind of theological sense. And, and he was really keen to keep the law. So it was kind of an understanding of Christianity that the average Pharisee could probably take out membership. And the mainstream church said, hey, whoa, wait a minute, your Christology is just too low. You're, you're understating who Jesus is. You're undervaluing his death on the cross. Uh, we just can't have that. And so, but but this form of Ebionite, as some call it, uh, uh, Jewish Christianity, actually lasted for hundreds of years. But the Messianic Judaism, that, or uh, sorry, Messianic faith, Messianic Jews that we have today, they are genuine Christians. They're not really this other thing that was going on a long time ago. And, th- and these are the Jewish Gospels that got left behind. In my view, the Jewish Gospels that really count are the ones that are in the New Testament. At least three of them were written by Jews. That would be Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke probably was written by a Gentile. He might have become a proselyte, a convert, but I suspect he attended the synagogue as a Gentile, and so he would be called a God-fearer. And that's who Luke probably was, who wrote Luke and the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. Craig, let's... uh before we go to break, just briefly talk about your book, but I'd love for you to describe it because it is uh, quite scholarly. I mean, I opened it and 
spent about three hours on one paragraph. Um, and in that three hours, I needed four naps. So I'm just saying, this is this goes in academic circles, doesn't it? Well, uh, now you've put me in a corner. Now I'm afraid to tell you what I really think. The book was written for the average person. The person okay. you know, maybe not for you, Bill, but uh, yeah, right. it, oh. was, it was written for, you know, it's not really written for scholars. Okay. I mean, scholars, I hope, use it. I hope what scholars do is, is make it a required reading in courses they teach because it's a reference work. It's okay. a handbook. We want to cover a lot of important topics, but we're covering them at sort of a lay-plus level. So a college student ought to be able to read these articles and understand them. Uh, a, uh, a seminary student, any pastor, okay. ought to be able to read them. Yeah, well, it is, uh, it's very <laughs> dense, very informative, very biblically based. I'm just on that side of the bell curve, which made guys like you look really good. <laughs> so, so let me take a quick break. Dr. Craig Evans is my guest. His book is a handbook on the Jewish roots of the Gospels. We'll take a very short break and be right back. love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. Welcome back to the show. So glad you joined me today. Dr. Craig Evans is my guest. And Craig, before we get back to your book, I want to do a little sales and marketing. I do a, a, a series on the words of Jesus, and I watched a couple of your videos, one on the prodigal son and one on the sinful woman. And I practically insist you come on that segment and, and be part of my show some Wednesday. <laughs> well, maybe we can do that. Okay. See, Rosie, make sure you got that recorded. That That is... <laughs> Call, call my lawyer, and that's going to happen. I have it recorded, and so do over <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people oh. are hearing that too. So, Craig, you're you're oh, really in a corner in. now. He's in. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Well, okay. Well, we'll talk about my fee also. <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people yeah. can hear that too. Yeah. That's well, good. I like it. All right. We can. Like we're going to edit that. That we're definitely edit that. <laughs> all right. Um, let's get back to the book, the handbook on the Jewish roots of the Gospels. Uh, Craig, the Jews doubted the Messiah would be crucified with such dishonor. Why is this so? Well, I'll tell you right away, there were a variety of ideas. So there wasn't simply a Messianic idea that every Jewish person held to. There are five or six different scriptures that everybody agreed was relevant, but they didn't interpret them all the same way. And one of the uh, most controversial passages was the Suffering Servant Song. And, of course, Jesus believed that this clarified his own suffering and death. He was going to be that servant who would be lifted up, who would, on a cross, and suffer for his people, and then be vindicated, be exalted, and accomplish God's mission. But a lot of people didn't want that, and, and there were people in the first century, in Jesus' time, before him and afterwards, who claimed to be uh, the Messiah, and, of course, this is what led to these wars. There were three terrible wars. We all know about the first one that ended with the destruction of the temple, but there were two more. 
one in North Africa at the beginning of the second century, and then the famous Son of the Star Bar Kokhba War, 132 to 135. And that's, that's what ended the state. There wasn't an Israel for another 18 centuries, and then it was reborn in our time in 1948. So anyway, a lot of people preferred a Messiah who was more like Caesar, who would be the commander of an army, would defeat people, conquer the Roman Empire, and Israel would be exalted. And Jesus just kept telling his people, that is not the way it's going to go. And in the Gospel of John, they even want to make him king. They want to forcibly make him king, crown him, a big entourage, go to Jerusalem, you know, throw out the Jewish rulers. Jesus now is our king, and Jesus would have none of it. So I I think that's what's going on. And so it isn't just one view, but it's several views. And Jesus' view in some ways was distinct because he, he taught he needed to suffer first and deal with the real problem, which was a sin problem, estrangement of God's people from God, and rectify that problem. And then uh, he could be their king and the, and, and the nation would rule. So that would happen in the future. So that was his view. And obviously it caught on. The resurrection was confirmation that he spoke the truth and the church was born. Mm-hmm. Dr. Craig Evans is my guest. A handbook on the Jewish roots of the gospel is his book. Uh, this next question, uh, Craig, I, I, I'm fascinated with, and I think I've, I've heard a lot of people give answers to this question, but I can't wait to hear yours. And I'm looking at Jesus on the cross right now, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is behind this question from our Savior? Well, <clears throat> that's a great one because he's identifying as the sufferer, the, the righteous sufferer, the person who isn't supposed to suffer. He didn't do anything wrong. It isn't a just uh, punishment or something like that. And so he's identifying uh, with the Davidic king. And, of course, the Psalms all had that perspective, these royal Psalms. And so as Israel's legitimate king, he now finds himself surrounded by dogs that are barking at him. He finds mm. his hands and feet pierced. He finds himself being mocked. He finds himself thirsty. And so he cries out in the opening words of the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, if you read the psalm, it goes through all of his troubles and all of his hardship, and then it ends on a note of faith. Mm-hmm. It ends on a note of hope. And so most interpreters think, Jesus may have quoted the opening verse, but he has in fact in mind he has in fact in mind the entirety of the psalm. And so I, for me that speaks to the truthfulness uh, of, of Scripture, a willingness to be frank. Two of the four gospels have Jesus say this. I think if these gospels were fictions, uh, that, that would simply be omitted. Nobody, somebody would cook up a different kind of a story. But uh, I think this just shows that the incarnation is real, that Jesus became truly, fully human, and that includes suffering, it includes death, and it happens on the cross in fulfillment of Scripture, Jesus identifying himself as the suffering servant, prophesied in Isaiah, and also at the same time identifying with Israel's king. All right, Craig, we we learned that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are are more parallel than John. So let's look at John a little bit more. The The initial or uh, the first 11 chapters of John focus on signs. Why, why do you think he does this? Oh, I think John is just brilliant. I think it's the most brilliant scriptural strategy of the four Gospels. He shows in the first half 
of of his gospel that Jesus does one thing after another, that he performs seven signs, he acts in a way that's according to the scriptures, and the word the fu- the fulfillment formula in order that it be fulfilled, is not used one time in those first 11 and a half chapters. He saves it until he formally notes that despite all the signs, the leaders were not believing in him. And then he says, that fulfills what Isaiah said. And Bill, from that point on, that's the only way Scripture is referenced as fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. Mm -hmm. So up to then... No. After that, the only way. And I think what he's trying to say, it's a very important defense of Jesus's suffering, is his suffering did not disqualify him as God's son or as the Savior or as the Messiah. Rather, his suffering fulfills God's plan. And so the suffering and the death fulfill, fulfill, fulfill. And that's a structure that John did and, and the transition is chapter 12. It pivots with, with uh, rejecting him despite all the signs. And by the way, that's what Moses said would happen. At the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 29, Moses warns the second generation, don't be stupid like the first generation that had no faith, built the gold, golden calf, died in the wilderness. Don't be like them. And he warns them that despite all the signs, their eyes couldn't see, their ears couldn't hear, they couldn't understand in their heart. And Jesus is saying that's what this generation is doing, and that's why unwittingly they fulfill Scripture, put him on a cross, he achieves God's plans, he brings it to uh, a successful conclusion, and he will return as Israel's king someday in the future. Oh, that's awesome. Craig, I have probably time for one more question, just a couple of minutes left. What do you mean by the passion chapters? Well, uh, the passion, of course, is Passion Week. And, uh, of course, these are the chapters in the Gospels that deal with uh, the last week. And uh, Jesus enters the city, things happen, uh, opposition grows, he's arrested, he, is, he suffers, uh, he's tormented, he's put on the cross, and then he's resurrected. And, of course, this is a huge part, uh, you know, about 40% of the Gospel material is dedicated these are the passion chapters, so they're hugely important because they, they explain what really happened. And this is what people want to know mm-hmm. when you think about it. It's a paradox. Are you saying that your Jesus is the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and he died on a Roman cross? I don't think I understand that. And so that's why the Gospels uh, expend so much energy and ink to explain that, because that would seem so strange Uh, not just to Jewish people who want a triumphant Messiah who defeats the Romans, but it would seem so strange to people in the Roman Empire who are led to believe that it's Caesar who commands the legions. He's the true Savior, not somebody who died on a cross the way a criminal or a rebel might die. So that's why the Gospels invest that much time and effort in those chapters. Thank you so much, Craig, for uh, doing the show. Two things you have to do for me. You have to forget your phone at a restaurant tomorrow, and then make sure you come back on the program. Okay. (laughs) Gotcha, Bill. Have a great weekend. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Dr. Craig Evans has been my guest. His book, A Handbook on the Jewish Roots of the Gospels. After a short break, we'll be back with Dr. Greg Heddington. Lots more to come.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have my friend Dr. Greg Heddington back on the program. Greg is a Bible teacher and dear friend that I have known over decades. I'm always glad to have him on the show. Greg, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here, Bill. Yeah, I would say let's jump into James chapter 2. What do, you, what do you say? All right. Well, this is actually our last um, lesson, our seventh to last in the letter in James. What's going to make this difference is this one's going to be totally devoted to application that Love we it. glean from James, which emphasizes two themes, which I will mention in a minute. James understood that wisdom and maturity are not proved by what we know, but by how we apply what we know. The emphasis of the entire letter of James is the believer's spiritual maturity. How do we develop that maturity in order to have the courage to be faithful to the Lord? James answers that question by listing two characteristics, two themes. And the two themes we'll talk about in this lesson are, if you're taking notes, Roman number one, patience and humility. We live in an impatient time like probably never before. The pandemic is part of it. We're also a country that is polarized over issues and facts that we once accepted as true. And above all, we want what we want, and we want it now. I mean, we're Americans. (laughs) And America has been blessed in so many ways, and one of them is the advancements we've expressed, excuse me, experienced in the area of technology, which has also raised our expectations for quickly getting what we want. For example... When we go out and order food or drink, and we do not receive what we want, we send it back in order to get what we want. If we buy something in many stores and we don't like it, what are we able to do? Return it and either get our money back or exchange it for what we like of equal value. That is not the way it is in other countries. Have it your way. Have it your way. (laughs) Remember that little jingle? Yeah. That was in 1974, Burger King came up with this revolutionary innovation that their customers could order their sandwiches exactly how they liked or get a new one. Today, we expect that kind of service, but not so much back then. Now, I'm not going to say Burger King originated the idea, but pretty soon, most American retailers adopted that same idea, whether they were selling food, clothes, or whatever, with the same return policy. We want what we want when we want it. After all, we're Americans. However, this kind of convenience makes things more of a challenge for becoming spiritually mature through patience and living with humility. I mean, we don't want to wait for products, and and we don't have to now. We don't even have to drive to a store. Instead, all we have to do is pick up our phone and order that product on Amazon. So now what brings us little agitations are things like when we're driving in our car and a detour sign tells us we have to drive a whole two blocks out of our way. Or we have to stand in line at the grocery checkout for more than four minutes. Or it might be raining on a Sunday morning, and that is such a nuisance because... We'll have to drive to worship in the rain and then walk a few yards under our umbrella into the building. And, well, we think to ourselves, 
That's just too inconvenient, so I think I'll just stay home instead. One report, by the way, says 90% of churches in the U.S. are down 50% of their people physically worshiping at their services since COVID. Now, it's become more convenient to just sit at home and perhaps, perhaps watch it on Zoom whenever I, you know, might hear people having to be so inconvenienced by activities like that, driving to worship service in bad weather. I think of all my ministry trips to Cuba, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Colombia, Algeria, and other countries on a Sunday morning that I've been there when their fervor is so high to praise the Lord and worship, even though few people have cars, that they will take a bus, ride a bike, or walk 20 to 40 minutes or more through whatever inclement weather in order to worship the Lord. And I wonder how many of us so desire to drink in the Word of God and praise Him with all our hearts, like thirsting for water, that we would arrive at our service by bus, bicycle, or even walking. A great man once said, The greatest form of suffering for most Americans is to be inconvenienced. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. James has a response for those who often feel inconvenienced or impatient. He tells us to not expect God to follow our timetable for answered prayer. We pray in our time, and God answers in his time. We accept that reality of God's timing, then we tend to develop more humility and spiritual growth. Does James really say that? Well, in James 5, verse 7, he says we are to consider how the farmer lives. Have you ever planted a seed to produce flowers or plants or vegetables or fruit? After planting the seed, I know I have the urge to look at my watch and think, okay, how long is this going to take before I see the finished product? Of course, that's one of the many reasons I could never be a farmer. I would go out to the field the very next day, look at the soil, think to myself, well, this looks just like it did yesterday. (laughs) It's not working. (laughs) But has that seed failed? No, it just takes time to grow. But I'd rather it be like takeout food, and that's why I don't plant seeds in my garden. Now, the mature gardener would say the only crop that might appear overnight is weeds. And weeds could be a metaphor for the consequences of impatience. Think about how in our hectic society, we don't even have to wait for produce that is out of season to come to our grocery stores later in the year. No way. Produce is shipped by semi-trucks or flown from other countries so we can have that produce which is out of season, right? I mean, right now. And in our stores, we don't have to wait for that. I mean, who wants to wait? Who wants to be patient? I like that availability, too. But what's the result of all this instant gratification? It obliterates the need for patience and humility. Speaking of -of out-of-my-country trips, especially to Latino countries, I am constantly fascinated how in countries like Venezuela and Cuba, it's not just believers, but all people have no choice but to stand in line at stores for one, two, three, or even more hours, 
regardless of the weather, in order to buy absolutely essential food for life and other basic necessities because they have no other choice. If that were the daily routine in this country, not only would we revolt, but it would also affect our theology. Why do you say that, Greg? Because some people could consider God to be punishing us or uncaring or punitive toward us, and we take it personally. But as we read Scripture, we discover the surprise truth that God is not mad at us. He's not punitive. And as James 5.12 says, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God's mercy toward us is one of the most profound truths we know about our Lord. And we learn that he wants us to achieve what honors him and blesses us. But most of the time, it is on his timetable. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways, says Isaiah 55, verse 8. His goal for us, ready? His goal for us is not to have lots of power and money, but to be content in whatever circumstances we find ourselves trusting him. God's goal for us is to become spiritually mature, to be, in a word, Christ-like. As Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. That's it. And Christ's likeness is not developed through constant impatience and anxiety, which I so often fall into. Mm. Rather, we develop that maturity by accepting, not avoiding, accepting difficulties with the peace that passes understanding, as Philippians 4.7 states. And the knowledge that we are immortal. Now think about this. We are immortal. We are going to live forever. That's the thought that'll change your afternoon. So difficulties in life can lead believers to be bitter or better. Because when we face problems, we often forget the presence of the Holy Spirit is in us, which is, get this, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Did I make that up? No. No, Ephesians 1. Well, yep, and it's also Romans eight eleven. Cool. So other times in the joy of success, we often ignore him and we say, oh, yeah, well, uh, oh, I guess that was the Lord working in me. Yeah. I love the fact that James 1, 5 tells us to ask God for wisdom when we need it. And God tells us to ask him for whatever we need. Again, as the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 4.12, I have learned the secret of being content in every circumstances, and that is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we're also encouraged by James 1.12, which says, count it all joy when you face trials because they test your faith in order to develop perseverance so that you will become mature. That is our constant goal, again, to be Christ-like. And I hope we will never stop growing, developing, and stretching. But it's not typically easy. Now, one of my favorite films is the baseball movie, The Natural. Did you see it years ago? I did. I loved it. Yeah, the protagonist, Roy Hobbs, this mythic-like, amazing ball player who is, he's had a string of bad years early on in his life, but years later... He's doing better, but the woman who really cares about him says this. She says, I believe we have two lives, the one we learn with and the one we live with 
after that. Now, I think there's something to that, and I know I want to learn from earlier times in my life when I messed up the most, so I don't have to repeat the same mistakes. I like the way it's worded in the 12-step program, which is patterned after biblical principles. The first step in the program says we admitted we were powerless over whatever the dependency might be, and we all have dependencies. So we admitted we were powerless over whatever it was, and our lives had become unmanageable. So step one is admitting we have a problem, and at the very least, we all have a problem of sin. And the third step is we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And we know God through Jesus. Years ago, I had a friend who struggled with anorexia, and she asked me, is there a pill I can take to get over this? I didn't say it, but I was thinking, you want quick results from a behavior you act out every day? That is your problem. Mm -hmm. Friends, we know maturity in Christ takes time like a growing plant, no shortcuts. And of course, patience is one of my least favorite words, but we do not struggle alone in the life as Christ followers. As Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, actually in you, the hope of glory. And we read eight, uh, Romans 8.11, but the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. And Bill, I think it would be time to take a break. Yeah, I think it would be too. I, it's been very convicting, Greg, to uh, hear, uh, given all of your missionary travels and everything you've done and the way we have gotten maybe a little bit on the soft and comfortable side. Do we Amen. have that, that same thirst for going and worshiping the Lord that some of the other people in other countries do when they have to travel maybe 45 minutes on foot in rainy weather to get there? So, no, that's Absolutely. very convicting. We'll take a break and be right back with Dr. Greg Headington as we continue finish our study on the Book of James. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. I'm back with Dr. Greg Heddington, and we're concluding our study on James and finding some amazing practical applications. Greg, you're doing a great job with this. I appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Well, we're, we've been talking about the book of James and what it says about how to be Christ-like, which is our goal as believers. And we've looked at the two themes of patience and humility. So it's all about application this week. And I'm certainly not good at being patient. And if I say I don't have a problem with humility, then that is probably an indication that I might have a problem with it. <laughs> mm -hmm. The gift of being patient is that we grow in our trust in the Lord, and we will not grow in that trust in any other way, except by waiting patiently and trusting Him. We may not like that as an answer to maturing in Christ, but I think it's true, and I think it's the only way, and I think James agrees with that. So we live by faith. However, faith in God does not make things easy but it makes things possible. And let me say it again. Faith in God does not make things easy, but it makes things possible. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Well, that's a good question, but how do we draw near? 
we have a huge advantage over the Old Testament Jews because we know the character of God through his loving, gracious son. So we talk to God directly. We, can, we confess our sins. We, we thank him for forgiveness. On the other hand, the Jews of ancient times drew close to God in a different way. They felt closer to God mostly through following the rituals written down in Moses' ceremonial and dietary laws. So before making animal sacrifices or praying or eating, they had to follow purification laws by the cleansing of the hands with water. The washing of the hands was really a metaphor that represented the purity of their hearts before the Lord. It was an act of contrition, of humility, which was required by the law of Moses. And it was this act of purification and the Jewish belief in one God that made them so strange, so bizarre to those living in the majority Gentile population of the Roman Empire. You know, I just don't understand this antagonistic feeling toward Jewish people. I mean, it's, it's been going on ever since God chose Abraham to begin the race. I mean, it's incredible to me that there are still anti-Semitic people throughout the world. It's just baffling. After all, there's an old maxim, how odd of God to choose the Jews, but not so odd as those who choose a Jewish God, yet spurn the Jews. Hmm. Now, in other words, anti-Semites claim they worship God, but the only way they know God is because it is revealed to Gentiles like them, like us, through his son, who, of course, was Jewish. So they say they are haters of Jews, but they worship God. Nothing could be more illogical than that. Okay, if you're taking notes, Roman numeral two, Greco-Roman thought. Now, I'm giving a little history to explain how very strange the words of Jesus and the New Testament writers sounded to the rest of the world. The Greek Empire controlled the world for 300 years until 63 B.C., and the Roman Empire controlled the Western world for another 500 years after that. Now, for those two empires, the idea that a man was to strive to be humble was anathema. It's one of my favorite $3 words, which I occasionally like to slip into conversation. And it means the idea of it was loathed, it was abhorrent, because the model, the ideal man was not humble. In the 800-year reign of the Greco-Roman world, it was the arrogant, mythological, godlike warrior named Achilles, who was a violent, selfish character, well, who made up for that through his bravery and ruthless killing of enemies in battle. In Homer's 8th century epic work called the Iliad, that's the 8th century B.C., the opening sentence of the book is, Seeing Goddess the Wrath of Peleus' Son Achilles. Wrath, violence, and revenge were the attributes of a real man, an independent, heroic man, honored in the ancient world, but was to die fighting bravely in battle, and then you might have him immortalized in song. But it was not the humble man. The, the humble man was disdained. So you can understand how the Jews were considered to be such an odd race because they believed in submission to their God. Hmm. Instead of the pantheon of the uh, theological, uh, many theological gods of the Romans. In fact, because they only believed in one God, they were called, you won't believe this, atheists. 
but it was especially the people who followed this so-called rabbi from Galilee that baffled the Romans. After all, Jesus once told his followers in Matthew 23, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the word humble is comparable to the word meek. Meek can be defined as power under submission, in a similar way that a horse is meek when it submits to its rider as the reins are put in its mouth to guide it for uh, to where it's to go. Or even a person might be considered meek who is under submission to the Lord as a Christ follower. But there's no weakness involved. Now, you can imagine the bewilderment of a Roman citizen who might have been in the crowd when Jesus gave the famous sermon, the most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in that sermon, chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus is referring to those who had humbled themselves in order to be dependent on God, not only to meet their daily needs, but for salvation, and to expect the power of God to ripple inside of them as they are transformed for His use on earth. You see how simple those those words are about being humble, spoken by Jesus and his brother James, they were, but they were so revolutionary, not just to the Jews, but even more so to the Gentiles, who had been converted from paganism, who were trying to make sense of this radical idea of humility as a way to live in this belief in only one God. So anytime we read the New Testament, let us Always keep in mind this backdrop of the hostile Roman world toward these new believers and the create the really courageous authors who wrote down God's truth to be read for the next 2,000 years. And now we're on to Roman numeral three, humility today and in Psalms. Now this is the last point. Men who were reared in my generation... Let's remember, animals are raised, people are reared. My mother, who's an English teacher, thought us that many times. <laughs> In my generation, men had a somewhat different view of what a man was supposed to act like than today's man. Our model for manhood, well, at least back then, it was John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, Stephen McQueen, and, of course, the Marlboro Man, but that's back when there were advertisements for smoking cigarettes. These were not men with clean hearts, excuse me, clean hands and pure hearts, but rather independent, solitary men who cleared out the bad guys with vengeance mm -hmm. and violence. They would not be described as humble. It was later in the 1970s that movies began to portray some men as more of models of sensitivity. And that's why men like Dr. Martin Luther King were misunderstood by people because he did his best to lead and teach others the way of nonviolence and caring for the underserved with humility. No one does it perfectly because we're all human, but Scripture is clear about what our motivation is to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. The British writer and art critic John Ruskin says, the first test of a really great person is their humility. 
The words of King David are also still operative today. He'd reached the pinnacle of success as the king of Israel, but would make enormous mistakes. Yet he continued to turn to the Lord over and over for guidance and confession, and he knew the importance of clean hands and purifying his heart before God in prayer. And so in Psalm 51.10, David prayed these immortal words, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And in Psalm 24.3, David says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And then he speaks for the Lord and answers, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Finally, we have referred to this in the past, but there was a popular television show that ran for years about West Texas high school football called Friday Night Lights. And some of us still remember the motto that the high school football team had. It was this, clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. But, you know, I think we can improve just a little bit on that. Here's what I believe we should say. Clear eyes, excuse me, clean hands, pure heart, can't lose ultimately. And, Bill, that's the word. That's fantastic. Greg, always enjoy the teaching and the time together. Thank you so much for being on the show, as always. Thank you, brother. You bet. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.